and welcome to the Scripture Study Project, a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that we hope will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. I'm Krista, and I am here with my Christmas sweater-wearing husband, Zach. I have three really good-looking Christmas sweaters. He looks forward to Christmas every year for these, or to winter, so... So as long as there's snow on the air, snow on the ground, and, and <laughs> below 40 in the air, I'll wear them. They're great. You know, everyone needs a Christmas sweater. Or three. Uh, we are really excited for this episode. This is episode 13, and we are diving into a new book of scripture. We're not done with the small plates of Nephi. Remember, these are the plates that Nephi writes or starts so that he can write the prophecies of his people. He gives them to Jacob, his brother, and Jacob will write seven chapters on them. And they're really some of the most overlooked chapters in the Book of Mormon. Undervalued, maybe, is the better way to say it. So we're really excited to dive in this episode and the next episode into the Book of Jacob. But of course, let us start off with our study tip for today. And this study tip actually came to us as we were studying for this episode. And I had the question I asked Zach. I said, are we getting a little redundant? Because we seem to be saying the same things. Jesus answers our problems. Jesus is there. Look to Jesus, which is the point of what we're doing, obviously. But I said, you know, maybe that's probably how these prophets felt, too. Yeah. Are they saying the same thing? So how does what is the answer to yeah. that? Well, it's tough is because it redundant? In, a, in a podcast, we're trying to, I mean, the whole title of our podcast is Fresh and Faithful. And so in trying to think of new perspectives and new ways to look at the scriptures, um, the Savior does come up a lot. I think we've mentioned this in a previous episode, but there are more references to Christ in the Book of Mormon than any other, or per verse, than any other verse or any other book of Scripture, even over the New Testament. And so the Book of Mormon authors themselves, their whole point, Nephi says it and Jacob says it, their whole point is to write about and persuade people to come to Christ. So as we talked about it, I thought of this quote um, I read Sun Tzu's The Art of War, probably a truncated version. I don't think I read the whole thing in one of my business classes. And I had this lingering quote from Sun Tzu that says, Strategy without tactics is the slowest way to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. I don't know tons about warfare, but I know this much that a lot of times there's an overarching strategy in a war but then there are individual or smaller tactics to help accomplish that strategy. And so if we're framing the Book of Mormon in the context of the plan of salvation, where we are at war against the powers of evil, as we've said in previous episodes as well, the strategy to win this war is to follow Jesus Christ. And that strategy doesn't change. It's in every chapter. It's in every prophet. Jacob will even make that point in this block of scripture that none of the prophets have spoken except to have testified of Jesus Christ. However, there are individual tactics that we can find. And so as you're studying your scriptures, you will find, if you're paying attention, the overarching strategy of come to Christ and follow Christ, especially in the Book of Mormon. However, if you want to really uh, dive deeper into your study, look for underneath that umbrella strategy, look for the individual tactics. What are the specific ways we come to Christ? What are the specific ways that we can apply his teachings in our lives or help others to come closer to him? And I would even add to that the personalized tactics that we can gain from the scriptures. Mm. Those things that 
the spirit teaches us this one's for you. This is what you need to be doing right now in your life. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, and as we translate this over to our teaching tip, it just goes exactly along with that. Teach the strategy, always center, always focus on the savior. The scriptures are teaching that that's why we're all here. That's why we're all teaching is because we want to know of Jesus Christ, but don't forget to point out the tactics. It'd be a shame if in the church of Jesus Christ, if someone attended one of our meetings, if in sacrament meeting in Sunday school or in their core meetings, they never heard teachings about Jesus Christ. And sadly that happens a lot. We focus a lot on the tactics. So don't leave the savior out of your teaching. In fact, he should be a central part of it. However, just because everything is about the savior and everything is, don't ignore the specifics as well. So in Jacob chapter one, Jacob is given the heavy task of preaching to these Nephite people. Uh, Nephi, their king, has passed away or, or will within the writing of this chapter, or at least within his narration of the chapter. And Jacob has a pretty heavy responsibility. He says, verse 7, we labor diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ. So there's the strategy, but there are some specific tactics that he's going to give his people that allow them to um, fight back against some of the temptations that, that the adversary is throwing against him. And there are some specific tactics that Satan is using against this people that's beating him. And so we want to point out this in our scripture study because this will help frame our study Jacob uses a word a couple of times in these chapters. If you go to chapter 3, verse 11, Jacob says, O my brethren, hearken unto my words, arouse your faculties of your souls, shake yourselves, that you may awake from the slumber of death. If you go to chapter 7, at the end of the block, he recounts an exchange he has with an antichrist named Sherem, and he says, Verse 5, and he, meaning Sherem, had hoped to shake me from the faith. And a little bit later in that verse, he says, nevertheless, I could not be shaken. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, Jacob explains that his faith has become unshaken, insomuch that we can truly command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, and the mountains or the waves of the sea. And as we noticed those words, we thought, boy, that's a perfect word to describe the wrestle that goes on a lot of times in each of us and between us sometimes. And so what we want to do is ask the question in this lesson or in this episode, what is it that Satan is doing to try and shake us from our faith? And we'll talk about things that he's doing to try and shake us internally our own sins and our own faults. And we'll also talk about things that he's trying to do to shake us externally, uh, how he's using the world and the environment we live in to try and shake us from the faith. But of course, more importantly is, how can we, like Jacob, become unshakable so that despite those efforts by the adversary, it doesn't work and it doesn't shake us and we feel solid and firm in our faith in Christ, tied to that strategy and armed with tactics to help us win. So let's start with the things that shake us. And we are going to be reading in first in Jacob 2, verses, starting in verse 12. And now behold, my brethren, this is the word which I declare unto you, that many of you have begun to search for gold and for silver and for all manner of precious ores. 
in the which this land, which is a land of promise unto you and to your seed, doth abound most plentifully. So the first is greed, and we move on to verse 13, and the hand of providence has smiled upon you most pleasingly, that you have obtained many riches, and because some of you have have obtained more abundantly than that of your brethren, you are lifted up in the pride of your hearts, and wear stiff necks and high heads because of the costliness of your apparel, and persecute your brethren because ye suppose that you are better than they. And that one's maybe a little more recognizable, um, and he says it in there, but pride is that second one. And then moving to verse 22, and now I make an end of speaking unto you concerning this pride. And were it not that I must speak unto you concerning a grosser crime, my heart would rejoice exceedingly because of you. But the word of God burdens me because of your grosser crimes. For behold, thus saith the Lord, this people begin to wax in iniquity. They understand not the scripture, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms. And so the third one we see is the whoredoms, the unfaithfulness, the sexual sin, the the many, I guess the word we like to maybe sum those up was that unfaithfulness. And maybe to add to it, I've always looked at chapter two, at that part of chapter two of specifically about the law of chastity and violations of the law of chastity. And of course, Jacob mentioned some specific things that are attacking his people. But in chapter three, uh, he tells the Nephites, this is verse five, the Lamanites, your brethren, whom you hate because of their filthiness and cursing which has come upon them, are more righteous than you. And then in verse 7, he explains why. Behold, their husbands love their wives, their wives love their husbands, and their husbands and wives love their children. It's one of those, up to this point in the Book of Mormon, it's been Nephites good guys, Lamanites bad guys, and Jacob's the one to tell the Nephites, the Lamanites are more righteous than you because they are faithful to their families. I think summed this up well was a quote that I came upon by um, Bishop H. David Burton. He says, The current conventional wisdom is that more is better and less is usually undesirable. For some, the pursuit to acquire more of this world's goods and services has become a passion. For others, more of this world's wealth is necessary just to sustain life or raise living standards to a minimum level. The unbridled desire for more often has tragic consequences. And he goes on to then quote President Packer. We could be like a father determined to provide everything for his family. He devotes every energy to that end and succeeds. Only then does he discover that what they needed most to be together as a family has been neglected. And he reaps sorrow in place of contentment. I think that's just a modern day version of exactly what these these verses are saying. In a way, all three of them, greed, pride, and unfaithfulness, are attacks on the family and attacks on our relationship with our families. And if I can, and I, I, I don't mean to get overpassionate about this, but I probably will get overpassionate about this because this is something that I'm extremely fiery about. And I think I'm okay to do that because Jacob himself is fiery about it. In chapter two, he talks about the, oh, this is verse six, it grieveth my soul and causeth me to shrink with shame before the presence of my maker that I must testify to you concerning the wickedness of your hearts. 
And it also grieveth me that I must use so much boldness of speech concerning you before your wives and your children, many of whose feelings are exceedingly tender and chaste and delicate before God, which thing is pleasing unto God. I love that the scriptures can be applied to all of us in every situation. However, guys, I think chapter two is specifically targeted at us. Jacob mentions the wives and the children who have come to hear the pleasing word of God and don't get to hear it because their husbands or fathers are guilty of these three family-destroying, shaking sins of greed, pride, and unfaithfulness. So here's where I get to be bold because Jacob's being bold. This is verse 31. For behold, I, the Lord, have seen the sorrow and heard the mourning of the daughters of my people in the land of Jerusalem, yea, in all the lands of my people, because of the wickedness and abominations of their husbands. I will not suffer, saith the Lord of hosts, that the cries of the fair daughters of this people, which I have led out of the land of Jerusalem, shall come up unto me against the men of my people, saith the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 35, Behold, you have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites, our brethren. You have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. And the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. And because of the strictness of the word of God, which cometh down against you, many hearts died, pierced with deep wounds. Guys, Jacob's talking to us. And he's taking us to task for being so focused on money and on greedily gulping up pleasures of the world. On pride, meaning I can do this alone. I don't need my wife. I don't need my family. I'm the strong man who doesn't need help. And of course, unfaithfulness. Whether that's gross violations of the law of chastity or small violations in our thoughts and in the things that we view and listen to. We can't be this way. We're wounding our wives and our children. We're, we're causing their hearts to die is the language that Jacob uses. And I think for me, at least, that's the takeaway from chapter two. These sins that shake us from the inside um, are the ones that are shaking men from their homes and shaking men from their responsibility to be righteous husbands and fathers long before they try and be righteous or, or good employees or good bosses or even good members of the church. We should be righteous husbands and fathers first. And I think that is obviously very powerful, but I think the same can be applied to both directions, of course. Um, we're going to move next to chapter 7 as we talk about what shakes us from the outside. So this is the story Jacob recounts of Sherem, who comes as an antichrist, comes against him. And we just want to point out a couple of things. Sherem does three things to try and shake Jacob from his faith. Verse 2, It came to pass, he began to preach among the people, this is Sherem, and to declare unto them that there should be no Christ. And he preached many things which were flattering unto the people. And this he did do that he might overthrow the doctrine of Christ. I asked a group of students once what they thought the word flattery means. And they contrasted flatteries with compliments. And they pointed out that a compliment is something you give someone when you are being selfless. You want to give them something that makes them feel better about themselves. A flattery Maybe the exact same words, however, you're giving to them because you want something from them. A lot of times mm -hmm. Satan uses flatteries against us. He compliments our strengths or he preaches to us through other voices 
doctrines or worldly philosophies that sure sound really good and make us feel good about ourselves, but that are not true. And the reason he wants to do it is to overthrow the doctrine of Christ. In verse 3, he, meaning Sherem, labored diligently that he might lead away the hearts of the people. I don't think anyone could ever accuse Satan or anyone that's acting as voice for him as being lazy. It's hard work and they're tenacious in trying to shake us from the faith. And then verse 4, he was learned that he had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people. And just as with the last one, you don't have to look too far, I think, to see some common uh, or maybe some examples of this in the environment that we live in where people who are learned in the language, uh, who are working really hard and who are trying to flatter us so that we give them our allegiance or give them our followership or give them our money, are trying to shake us from our faith in Christ. So Jacob then says in verse 5, he had hope to shake me from the faith, notwithstanding the many revelations and the many things which I had seen concerning these things. For I truly had seen angels, and they had ministered unto me, and also I had heard the voice of the Lord speaking unto me in very word from time to time, and I love this, wherefore I could not be shaken. So the question we have then is, how do you get there? How do you get to be like Jacob when you are, where you get to be unshaken or unshakable? If I can, I just want to start with my own personal experience, because I have felt a lot of these shaking experiences. I'm sure many of you can identify with some of these. I think the first, the first time I had my first real shakening was of all places on a mission, um, where I, I felt like, why am I thinking this? I, I don't even know if there's a God anymore. I'm being shaken to the core of my beliefs. And I felt like my entire belief system was almost, you know, taken out from under me. And it was, it was kind of a scary time, but it was also one of those times that I turned to God and I turned to the scriptures to understand where do I need to be? Where do I need to be? And I, I think it's good to have those. I like the way Sherry Dew explains those as the engaging in the wrestle, because I think that's what it is. Sometimes those for me, as I have learned since then and have had other shaking moments um, that have been either short-lived or, you know, months at a time where I question things and I don't really know what I believe anymore. It allows me to engage in the wrestle that reinvigorates my faith. And because of that, um, I've been able to draw on the experience of kind of what exactly what Jacob is experiencing here. Like Jacob says in verse 5 that Zach already read, um, notwithstanding the many revelations that I've had, I, I think it's so good for us to engage in that and to really work through it. For me, I've come to realize that, um, and I love this, this chapter of Sherem and this conversation between Sherem and Jacob because I can identify with it because I, I go through this battle in my own head. I don't need an antichrist to come <laughs> to me, but I have these own battles in my head that I, I feel like once I, even let Satan in just a little bit. He really works hard on, on shaking me, but I can go back and I can look and, and feel those, those same things. Um, here in verse 12, Jacob says, and this is not all. It has been made manifest unto me for I have heard and seen, and it also has been made manifest unto me by the power of the Holy ghost. And 
I think those wrestles that we go through, the wrestle that we see Jacob going through, I almost think he's saying these verses as a way to remind himself that he believes in those things. Mm-hmm. Because when someone is there shaking you, you you need to remember and look back on what you've already seen. And I'm sure this is another one of those Elder Holland talks that you just leave feeling pumped up by. But it's his talk Lord, I believe. He says, in moments of fear or doubt or troubling times, hold the ground you have already won, even if that ground is limited. In the growth we all have to experience in mortality, the affliction or desperation is going to come to all of us. When those moments come and issues surface, the resolution of which is not immediately forthcoming, Hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. You know, that reminds me of Jacob in chapter 4. He says, and we've read these verses a little bit, verse 4, For this intent have we written these things, that they, meaning future generations, may know that we knew of Christ and had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. Behold, they believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name. And then verse 6, Wherefore we search the prophets, and we have many revelations and the spirit of prophecy. And having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken. It's those personal revelatory moments that I've had, plus my continual study of the words of the prophets that gives me hope and that makes my faith unshakable. Not that it won't be shaken from time to time, but I have this solid foundation of personal experiences and prophetic teachings that I can go back and rely on. You know, the what, what you just said about the foundation, Jacob mentions that foundation, and I think isn't that one way that we make everything unshakable? We build homes on foundations. Mm. We we sing songs about wise men building <laughs> on a solid foundation. Um, to go back to our study tip, it's all about the Savior. When we are focusing on Him, um, these are some tactics, again, that we can use, but it's about looking to the Savior for that foundation. Build on Him. I know another, maybe a tactic I've used myself, is that reminder that when I know that Satan is working on me, in my own brain, um, I remember that I know that God lives. I have felt that witness that God lives. And because I felt God's love so often, I felt it through the Savior Jesus Christ. And for me, that that has become my foundation. Now, that's not going to be obviously the way that everyone feels that. But for me, that's really become my foundation when, when hard, troubling times come. So maybe just to summarize, um, there are things that shake us from the inside. Greed, pride, unfaithfulness, and anything that might attack our the foundation of our family. There are, of course, things that shake us from the outside. When someone comes against us who is flattering, who wants to overthrow the doctrine of Christ, who works hard. But there are things that we can do to keep ourselves unshakable. And maybe the best way to summarize it is that, to build a foundation in Christ. And when shakings come, remember that foundation, to hold on to that firm ground you have. This one verse, I think, maybe 
puts an exclamation point at the end of our study. It's much, much later in the Book of Mormon. This is Alma chapter 48. It's about Captain Moroni. But if you listen carefully, I think there's a summary of what we've been studying and maybe something for you to ponder as you end this podcast and consider the things, these things in your own life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Now, when we get to the war chapters, we'll study more about Captain Rona and what makes him that kind of a devil shaker. But the point, I think, is this. Either Satan shakes you or you shake him. There's no truce. There's no middle ground. If you're not actively involved in building that foundation and building upon that foundation, then you're opening yourself up for Satan's attacks. And I think these chapters in Jacob give us the perfect opportunity to study and see really how Jacob built his foundation and how that can be a way that you are building your own foundation, which is something, like Zach said, we have to be doing it daily. We have to be readjusting our tactics and um, ways that we are going to come closer to the Savior and try and shake, be on the offensive we are not unshakable people that doing this podcast, and neither are you yet. But we hope that what we've studied today helps you feel a little bit more firm in your faith. And we've loved studying with you, and we would love to hear from you. Find us online, send us messages. We have so appreciated the comments and the feedback that we've gotten, and we welcome any more. And we will see you next episode. Thanks. Thanks.